We are live. Well, this is a recording, but we're live together right now on another edition of the Capital Spotlight Podcast, episode 25, with your host, the Director of Business Development, Craig McGrother, alongside the two-time author, the principal and founder of Lone Star Capital, the one, the only, Rob Beardsley. How are you today? I'm doing excellent. We both have uh, some good energy today. A lot of energy, a lot of awesome things going on. It's been a really, really hectic uh, November. Well, frankly, ever since the event, it's been very hectic, uh, which is good. Busy is good in this business. When the phone stop ringing, stop, when phone stops ringing, and you know we're slow is when I would get concerned, and I'm sure you feel similar. Yep. Yeah, it's good to see all the activity, even as the year is coming to an end. Uh, we still keep pushing. Yeah, and it's funny for the goals we want to hit, the work we got to do to get that. And to hit our 2020-2024 goals starts today. So with that said, let's get into it. But first, if you're a fund manager looking to partner with a great group like us to raise equity for multifamily opportunities, please reach out and email me. My email, of course, as you've heard a hundred times, but you're here at 101 right now, is Craig, C-R-A-I-G at lscre.com. Once again, if you're looking to raise equity for any opportunities and partner with us at Lone Star Capital. My email is craig at lscre.com. If you're a retail or sorry, an LP investor looking to, you know, find some end of the year depreciation uh, for your 2023 uh, goals, reach out to me, craig at lscre.com. If you potentially have a 1031 exchange coming up in 2024, reach out to me, craig at lscre.com. Is there any other call to actions that maybe you want to put out there? No, I think that's the usual. Yeah, well, hopefully we'll, this will be, I think, airing, going into our Bay Area event, which is very fun. Uh, but with that said, we have a jam-packed show for you. We're going to go over uh, the silly world of projected returns and how uh, interesting that can look as I had a very, very funny and, and spirited conversation with a prospective uh, LP investor uh, just this week. Um, and then how does someone get, in, or sorry, no, before that, uh, we'll do James Ng's uh, webinar discussing kind of the world of financing at the moment, uh, how someone gets into syndication, uh, the importance of a, a moat around your business model, brokers pushing lender relationships, and then how our process looks like with going live with the deal. Uh, but let's start with the first topic, which is the silly world of projected returns. So as maybe a lot of you guys know, a lot of you guys don't know, when one, a group like us, does a deal. We have a spreadsheet that gets broken out with IRRs, cash on cash, and you know several uh, moving components associated with a deal. That said, I spoke with a prospective LP who is a developer from Kansas City, very nice guy. And he called me after I sent him a deal saying this is the lowest IRR deal he has seen in maybe he said the last couple of years, but potentially ever. And I was almost caught off guard. And then I said, well, okay, what do you think about it? And he said, I love it because he's used to seeing people pitch him, you know, frankly, you know, deals that may not look realistic uh, or have kind of bogus, you know, inputs in their projections, which makes him not feel comfortable with, you know, crazy rent projections, not realistic expense growths, so on and so forth. So we've also internally have had these conversations before where it's like, gosh, you know, do we want to stretch a little bit number to make the deal look a little more appealing? But ultimately, we stick to our guns and we want to have very conservative numbers in there. 
And yes, we do conservatively underwrite, said everyone ever, but this person was a very good uh, indicator that we actually do do that because he was seeing deals with 20 pluses and I'm on value on multifamily deals in Texas, which, you know, I don't see how that's really coming, coming up. So would love to hear your takes on this and maybe some of the struggles and battles you've experienced regarding this subject as well. Yep. So this is a fun topic that at its core is a one way to look at it is delayed gratification or basically making your life easier now, harder later or harder now, easier later. And what I mean by that is the more aggressive you make your projections now, the more excited, just all else, all generally speaking, the more excited you're going to make potential investors. This mostly applies only to less sophisticated investors who aren't full-time professional investors like a fund manager, or private equity firm, or potentially a, a sophisticated family office. Those firms, they know what they're doing and they are they don't care as much what you're projecting. At the end of the day, they're going to take your numbers and your business plan and they're going to run it through their own analysis. But for a lot of retail investors, they're really relying on the sponsor's projections, as they should, right? They're a retail investor. This is not what they do full-time. This is not their expertise. And they don't want to spend a ton of extra time doing due diligence and underwriting deals, right? It's supposed to be passive investing. And so the benefit of partnering with a sponsor that you trust is you can be passive. You just trust in their numbers, you trust in their team, and you make your investment. However, like I said, if you are overly aggressive on the front end with your projections, you're going to have an easier time raising money, right? You go to an investor and you say, hey, this is a 20% projected IRR. Everyone's going to go, great, this is awesome. Where do I sign up? Then when you close and you now have to actually live up to those expectations, your life is much harder. So it's easier now, harder later. Conversely, if you are conservative on the front end with your projections, you say, yeah, we're underwriting this to a 15% projected IRR. That's going to perhaps turn some people off and they might go, well, you know what? Actually, I see a deal from another sponsor where they're projecting 20. So I'm going to pick the 20 over the 15. And that happens a lot. We lose a lot of investors and people in the industry lose investors to some of the more aggressive firms that are willing to be more aggressive with their projections. But if you are successful in raising the equity, right, you might work a little bit harder to raise equity with a 15% IRR projection. But now, when you're actually performing on the deal, you have an easier time meeting the expectations and hopefully exceeding expectations. And that's something core to our business model and, and our ethics, which is to under-promise and over-deliver. So I think that's the safer way to go. It's a more sustainable way to go because while having aggressive projections might help you raise money today, underperforming on those projections tomorrow is going to hurt your ability to raise capital in the future, right? So we're really playing the long game, thinking long term and thinking about how we can raise and be as successful as possible over decades. Yeah, and it's deferred gratification on our end because if, you know, we have a reputation of saying, hey, we're gonna do 15, 16, 17, you know, IRRs, which is your internal rate of return, your annualized return, and we hit that consistently, 
And, you know, we show our actuals versus projected over, you know, a decade of time, perhaps, and we're consistent with it. That's awesome. As opposed to the other end of the spectrum, maybe someone who's in the, the space for the wrong reasons, for the quick money, and they don't have a, a good track record and they don't have a good data room on the back end showing, you know, the opportunity of, you know, deal here and performance, you know, that that will ultimately come out at some point. And I think more than anything else, we, we spoke about this before, um, you know, several times just personally, maybe on air, uh, but for sure off air, which is we rather come out with deals that have even maybe even less than a 15 IRR where we can raise equity from people who want a 10 to a 15% return uh, that's safe and stable over a decade-long uh, hold, which is, you know, maybe essentially the best type of investors who are not in it to, you know, grow wealth right away or to, you know, do anything crazy, but are in the business of preserving wealth and are patient investors and just want to see, you know, their monthly dividend and don't call us and bother us. Yeah, that's another good point that is a bit, uh, yeah, it's related. So when you're talking about value add multifamily and you're and let's say even well specifically class B and C multifamily so as we lovingly call it junk right we're talking about 70s and 80s vintage property lower income areas this is value add real estate and generally speaking a 15% IRR net to investor is fairly market for those types of deal profiles and and to match the risk right and so the issue becomes when people project a 20 because 20 in as a base case scenario is not really realistic for that type of business plan and of course there are exceptions if there's more of an opportunistic play or a heavier lift and something like that or you know unique elements like a tax exemption or something some alpha but the beta there is about a 15% IRR so to your point one of our dreams is absolutely to I don't want to say transcend, but it really is transcend. And I'll explain why in a second, but transcend to core plus opportunities. Not to say that we never want to do value add. It's just that there's a lot of opportunity in the core plus space as well, because a deal that's a 15% IRR isn't always necessarily better than a deal that's a 12% IRR because you have to weigh the risk. That 12% IRR deal could actually be superior to the 15 if you're taking half as much risk. Wouldn't you accept? you know, three points lower IRR for, you know, two thirds less risk or something like that, right? Of course, yeah, that increasing that certainty. Exactly. So savvy investors, they really appreciate that and, and value that more. Actually, Kent and I were actually talking about this just the other day, talking about how, generally speaking, people's assessment of risk as it relates to the risk curve, which is your x-axis is risk and then your y-axis is return most people's risk curves are too flat and it needs to be steepened right so as people take more risk they don't think in their mind or they don't adequately price in enough additional return for the risk that they think so either people are miscalculating the level of risk they're taking or they're underappreciating the return premium they should demand for that risk so when you when you talk to the most sophisticated investors they have a very steep risk curve which doesn't mean they're not willing to take risk. It just means that they appreciate risk and they really want to get paid for it. And they're totally fine taking a lower return in exchange for a lower risk. So so to go to, back to your point and nail it, is a, a dream in the future for us would be to have those investors back us that are comfortable with a 10% IRR projection net to investor 
over a 10-year hold. That is, those are dream investors. Not to say that we have to hold the deal 10 years or it, you know, it has to be a 10 IRR, but that that sort of concept. Investors that are long-term minded, not swinging for the fences, and are okay with uh, you know, singles and doubles. Absolutely. And I say that all the time. It's singles and doubles. And let's talk about the risk curve as well. Um, and also maybe the premise of what IRR would scare you being too high, where you feel as if it would be, you know, kind of a fabrication uh, as to how to get there. And what IRR seems just too low where it doesn't make sense. Or I guess, I mean, obviously it's going to be deal dependent, right? But can you kind of talk about the two polar ends of the spectrum, please? Yeah. So it all depends on the deal profile, right? So understanding that value-add deals are typically a 15% IRR. If you see a 20, you want to have a good reason for that being a 20 versus your more typical 15. So it's hard for someone who's not in the business and crunching numbers all day long to have a good understanding of this because you have to know what is market. You know, if you ask me what a typical return is for an oil and gas, certain oil and gas strategy, I have no idea. So I wouldn't know whether the return is high or low or you're being paid for the risk. I, I just don't know. So it's very important that we do spend a lot of time analyzing all the deals that we do and seeing 100 deals helps us identify the mean and then the outliers, right? So what gets me nervous is when I see a deal that just doesn't, should not be a 20% return being projected as such. So if I see just a typical down the fairway value add, they're they're paying market cap, right? They were the highest bidder. They're doing a standard business plan with interior renovations and they're using modest leverage. Why should the financial markets reward an investor with a 20% IRR for something so generic? That's just not how the world works, right? the world is going, there's enough capital out there that it's going to flow into these strategies and bid the return down to its absolute minimum. So there has to be a good reason to actually outperform the market average. And so beta, as it's called, is the average return for something. And then if there's excess return, that would be called alpha, right? So if the typical return is 15 and you're able to achieve an 18, that could be done through alpha. So that could mean that you have a unique strategy where you are getting a property tax exemption, or maybe you have a way to reduce costs because you have in-house construction and you have partnered with a local team or something. So you're able to cut construction costs in half. And that's that's true alpha, right? And funny enough, alpha cuts both ways. You can actually have negative alpha where you are investing in a strategy that should generate a 15% return, but because the manager made mistakes and there was oversights or what have you, you could actually underperform to a 12 and have negative alpha. So a lot of people talk about alpha and, oh, we have the highest returns, we have the best returns. But oftentimes that's actually just beta mistaken as alpha, right? Because when when the market is high and there's cap rate compression and there's rent growth like crazy, that's not alpha. The investment manager didn't do anything to earn that rent growth, right? That just that was market wide. Everyone who had exposure to that market participated in that. So that's just when beta is higher, right? So it's hard to actually tease out who has alpha, and it's hard to tease that out without having a long period of time to observe it. 
So, and that, that kind of makes me think about, you know, to cut you off here, which I never do, of course, but that makes me think about what the whole market experience before and during the COVID run was truly, you know, crazy money printing, rents going up left and right, stimulus all over the place. And everyone looked like a genius, but that was truly just, as you said, market beta. And then of course, if you bought maybe a property, you know, hundred plus unit deal that had some under market rents, maybe the most not sophisticated seller or, you know, whatever it may be that coupled with, you know, a, a value enhancement plan coupled with cap rate compression um, and just incredibly high market beta created the environment before where returns kind of got skewed in that little short segment of time. And who got the highest returns in that high beta environment? People that took the most leverage, right? Because beta is beta. And you could buy unlevered beta. You could buy 50% leveraged beta. You could buy 85% LTC beta, right? And when beta is good, the person who leveraged the most is going to get the best return. And they look like geniuses and right the story that's been told a million times. So what's interesting, though, is, of course, we all know leverage cuts both ways. And so when beta is negative, when rent growth is negative, cap rates are expanding and the market is struggling, that's negative beta. And the more exposure you have by way of leverage, the more negative your result is going to be. And so it's going to be a very telling period of time to see how people manage negative beta and are they able to generate alpha to counteract the negative beta to hopefully end up at, let's say, a zero. Because frankly, for a lot of folks that bought deals in the last few years, getting a zero, which just means your money back, let's say, that would be an awesome outcome, right? And so uh, savvy investors, they assess people not just on their wins, but on their losses and how they dealt with hard times because they're well aware of the fact that beta exists and uh, beta goes up and down. And also the other thing I wanted to say is, right, the best performers were those that had the highest leverage, right? And they got the most out of the beta that they got exposure to. And who performed During that the little worst? gap. Yeah. Who performed the worst? It was actually all the really smart money <clears throat> that was on the sidelines. There's smart investors who I was talking to for years saying, yeah, the market's very high. I think cap rates are too low. I think interest rates are going to go up. I'm out of this market. I'm just sitting on my hands doing nothing. And it was easy for a lot of people to point at them and laugh and say, you're missing out on all these incredible returns because you think you're too smart for the market. And that is, a, you know, who knows? We'll see what happens. But those people are looking pretty smart right now. You know who this makes me think of right now is the legendary uh, LP investor, Jeremy Roll. Me too. And the That's reason why, as well. exactly. And the reason why that is, is because he's very clear and uh, dogmatic, if you will, with regards to his practice in the sense that he will only invest in multifamily deals if there's 150 basis points plus of positive leverage. Once again, positive leverage means your cap rate is higher than your interest rate. So 150 points. Now, we may or may not be getting really close to that on an acquisition we're working on right now, but we're kind of generating that through a unique strategy, which goes in line with the Lone Star um, you know, alignment with mission uh, to preserve affordable housing. Correct. Yes. So we'll leave the teaser there. If you're looking to learn more about that, reach out to me, Craig at LSCRE.com. That said, that makes me think of him in that situation where, you know, he's like, Hey, maybe I, to your point, I might miss out on some gains here, but I know for fact that, 
you know, if I'm preserving capital, I'm not going to lose if I get in deals with that, with that structure, but also, Hey, the market's too hot. The music could end at any time. And I don't want to be caught, you know, at the end of the cycle, losing a bunch of money, deploying equity and deals that I just don't necessarily believe in from a practicality perspective. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting and markets are always fascinating to watch unfold and, and allocating capital is not easy because I would, it's hard to argue against Jeremy, right? He's, he's a very smart guy and he's done very well. But I would argue against him, and I, I do think that he sat out too early. I think he called the top years early, and he missed out on a lot of gain. And so I think the way to, and maybe that's because he called the market top in multifamily, and he was busy investing in other things, and he was generating a strong return there. But I think if you were limited like we are in just investing in multifamily, you would not sit on your hands and say, well, I'm calling a top, so I'm just going to sit around and do nothing until I see the environment come to a place where I need it to. I think what you do is you just reduce your exposure. So you still buy deals, but you do it at lower leverage, right? And that might result in, you know, there were some very smart groups that were continuing to buy deals, even as the market got toppy and, and speculative. But what they were doing is they were doing 45, 50% LTV. They're being very conservative. So their upside was low because they didn't have a ton of leverage, but their downside was also very well hedged. And so their their risk of losing capital, which again is the number one sin, right? Warren Buffett, number one rule, never lose money. Number two rule, don't forget rule number one. So they were still buying deals, still getting exposure because you never know the market could run even more, but they were staying conservative and limiting their downside risk. Yeah. And I think Jeremy's point was solid. He said, I think around 2017, 2018, he uh, got out of the multifamily space and investing in basically other assets. And it fully makes sense because, you know, if you look at many indicators, we simulated the economy then, and then we probably should have had a recession in perhaps 2020 when COVID happened. And we all know the story there, money was printed. So we artificially propped up uh, the recession for much longer. So he probably was right. And, you know, naturally won't lose any money in what's coming up here and will likely um, feast on the opportunities to come up. But to your point, invest in every market. You just don't know when the gains are going to come, how much longer uh, it will go for. And that's why we are market agnostic from a timing perspective. So we'll be buying deals in every single market, um, the high lows and everywhere in between. With that said, you know, it kind of feels to me with regards to projections on our deals in 2023, we've kind of been around a... 15 to a 16 and a half is where kind of our numbers are kind of landing with where leverage was and 2023 was kind of a will be a very a very interesting year in the sense that transaction volume was not plentiful uh you know deals were not really making sense obviously in the middle of the year treasuries had a massive run up and caps just finally started to expand at the end of the year uh we're slowly kind of expanding throughout and then really i think in the last quarter quarter and a half started widening a bit, making, you know, deals more accessible to be had. Um, so kind of the music is stopping, the, the cycle is restarting. There's indicators to believe that perhaps, uh, you know, rates will be getting cut hopefully in 2024, which means the cycle is going to restart, which is awesome. As we kind of head into 2024, what do you think our investors or, you know, other syndicators and the industry should be thinking about as far as, you know, in inline market projections, that's not, too aggressive uh, or, you know, uh, offensive, if you will, uh, for, for folks. Yeah, this is actually a very funny concept because what we're heading into is a period of dislocation 
And we're going to see very strong potential returns because prices are coming down. And then I think the long end and the short end of the curve are coming down. So the short end of the curve being SOFR, which the Fed directly controls, I think the Fed's going to cut rates a decent bit next year. And then I, I think the long end of the curve is going to follow suit. It's already come down a ton in the last few weeks, which has been really exciting uh, because we've been sizing deals and signing them up based on a treasury of, let's say, 450. And the seems like the 10-year, it's 413 today, and it's working its way towards four. So that's fantastic uh, for us and, and the rest of the market for transactions. So the, the funny part is we're going to head into a period, like I said, of higher projected returns. Whether they materialize is always obviously just dependent on the individual circumstances and how the world plays out. But 2024 should be a very good vintage, which means it should just be a good year to buy real estate. So if we go to our investors, and, and I think this is legit, I think instead of in normal circumstances, it's a 15. I think it's going to be like an 18. Right. And, and but I think a lot of investors are going to be chastened by the negative experiences of bad of deals going south the last couple of years. Right. And not playing out to projection. Right. If someone pitched them a deal in 2021, that's a, hey, it's going to be a 15, 16 IRR, 17 IRR. And now that deals on life support and not paying distributions and struggling. Which not talking bad about anyone or any particular deal many, many deals find themselves in that situation. That's just the way of the cycle. But that investor is going to be disgruntled and say, well, I don't trust you anymore. You pitched me a 17 in 2021 and now that deals on life support. Why would I trust your 18 today? And that's the shame of it because that investor, and that's this is the psychology of markets, right? People are biased by recent experience. So when people have the worst negative sentiment is when prices are lowest and projected returns are highest, right? Think about a crash. The market just crashed and the stock market's down and everything's horrible. This should be the time to jump in. That's yeah. the time to jump in. But people go, oh, I'll never buy stocks again. Right. Yeah. And that's the time they should be jumping in. So I think that projected returns are going to be a couple hundred bips, at least higher uh, coming in, in 2024. So I think you're going to be able to buy. Normally, you had to take a decent amount of risk to get an 18. I think you're going to be able to reduce the amount of risk. And still be able to project an 18. I mean, just as an example, we're looking at a, I would venture to call it a, an A minus deal. And it's, I mean, it's certainly B plus, but so very nice deal, good incomes, beautiful property. I showed it to you last night. That is a deal that is nine times out of 10 institutionally owned by a REIT or a large private equity firm or something usually for a long-term hold with modest leverage. And those types of deals are usually being solved to like a 9 to 11% net IRR to investor. And we're looking at a deal, that, that exact profile. And we think we could, I mean, it's projecting to perhaps a 16. That's absurd. You should not be able to get a 16% IRR on that quality and low risk yeah. of real estate. Yeah, on a risk-adjusted basis, it's incredible. You know, and that's and and every investment decision should always be seen under the context lines and the in the view of risk-adjusted. How does this look? You know, if you could get seven percent 
every day, all day, 100% guaranteed, it would be hard for us to say, no, don't do that, right? Or 8%, whatever, you know, traditional market standards are. But, you know, when you calculate risk, then that's, you know, where things go out and need to get re, re kind of factored and calibrated. And to your point earlier about, you know, it being most difficult and the psychology of things being tough, I just spoke with a very, very uh, solid partner of ours who basically partners up on a lot of deals of ours. Obviously, not can mention any names, but he said, yeah, you know, frankly, n- nothing on your doing. My only reservations are I'm getting capital called on a deal right now, and it's just going to be challenging uh, or that could present potential challenge challenges. So we're going to experience a lot of that coming up. This is not the first time we've said that on this show. So 2024 will be the year of, you know, a lot of great deals, but also having to also get people excited about something that just burnt them and, you know, went the other way on them, which is potentially, you know, shorter term debt deals that uh, are just going to, you know, burn the investor and, you know, opportunities where they might lose their money, you know, where they would hope just to break par on. Yeah. Just to clarify that investors experiencing capital calls from other sponsors in their portfolio and which is causing them to have reservations to jump right back in and get more multi-exposure with us, right? Even though that we don't, have problems with with them specifically so yeah that's that that the chaos creates opportunity and we're going to see a lot of that in 2024 which we've been hammering that point on this show a ton another really interesting piece of uh, interesting nugget that i got from a very savvy investor uh, of ours i had a call with the other day he was telling me about one of his friends who bought a piece of land and i don't he didn't get into the specifics of the business plan, but this was ended up being a super long hold. He held the deal for like 30 years. So he held this land for 30 years. A parcel. Yep. And he had to pay, uh, you know, the taxes for it and whatever carrying costs associated with the land for years. I mean, he put millions into this piece of land and it just kind of hung in there the whole time, nothing exciting. But then in the last three years of this 30-year hold period or something like that, the land value tripled. And he, you know, he put in like 10 million into this deal all in and made and got back 30 or something like that. Which, I mean, over 30 years or whatever the number was, maybe that's actually not such a tremendous return or whatever. But his point was returns across a hold period aren't evenly distributed necessarily, right? It's not like you invest in a 15 IRR 15% IRR deal and it's like year one you get 15 and 15 and 15 and 15 right it could be you get nothing 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 and then you get a pop at the end right and so I actually really want to expand on that yeah I thought it was a really interesting topic and you know so he was very sanguine in that you know hey market isn't super isn't doing well right now, but it's okay, right? It doesn't have to go up every year. We can still get a great return with a couple down years in our hold period because if you believe a lot of economists, uh, we're going to have a recession, but guess what? There's no shovels in the ground. Developers, there's no new developments happening. So there's going to be a a restriction on supply. And so when demand comes back coming out of the recession and we get re-stimulated with low rates, there's going to be all this housing demand and there's going to be no supply, right? We already have a housing supply shortage. So a lot of people think that rent growth is going to come back with a vengeance and maybe as soon as 2025 or maybe 2026. So it doesn't have to just be that you get three, 4% rent growth every year. It could be 
flat, negative, and then you get 10% in one year. Yeah, no, it's not linear. And my example here that got me so excited is Phoenix. Obviously, this is a mark that I know very well as I live here and I used to be a residential broker um, in, in the market here. And the fascinating kind of concept here that I just want to touch on real quickly is before 2008, you'd see you know transactions, you see kind of the, the, the ledger and history of deals trading over time for a specific property. You would see a property that closed maybe in 2006 for a million, and then you'd see it sold in 2010 for 600 grand. You know, legitimately that. And then you see it trade again in 2018 and it was for 650, 700K. So to your point, Phoenix actually, um, if you look at from call it 2020 to 2012, uh, no real growth at all from 2012 to 2018. And then 2018 to maybe 2020, there was a bit of growth, but then 2020 to 2022, it really popped. But if you look at that over the course of a decade's time, as you said, it'd probably be a linear little growth. But as you said, uh, markets are, are you know, sometimes not as linear like that. There's just circumstances that really accelerate um, growth and appreciation. So I just wanted to add a little tidbit there because it really made me think of this market specifically. And now we're obviously experiencing a downturn, which is not really Lone Star's issue as we're not in the state yet. Maybe we will at some point, but um, it is interesting to see. And then to your point, there's a ton of new supply coming here uh, that will take a while to absorb. So I don't see the situation out here getting any better anytime soon. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's idiosyncrasies with every market and uh, ups and downs. But yeah, it's was, it was an interesting concept about the non-linearness of returns and, and return attribution and all that. So anyway, some interesting tidbits from some of our very savvy investors. I think that maybe, maybe not leads us in nicely to uh, James Eng's most recent webinar, which was his December, December webinar. I think he does a monthly webinar on YouTube. It's very good. So we definitely want to shout him out and recommend his webinar series. Yeah. Uh, so in that series, I watched it, I think a couple of days ago, the thing that stood out to me most was the classic chart going back through cycles, showing the relationship between cap rates and the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield. So the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield is regarded as the risk-free rate. And more poignantly, it is your index rate for a lot of long-term financing. If you're going to borrow 10-year money for multifamily, like let's say Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac loan, your interest rate is going to be comprised of an index, which is going to be the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield, and then a spread by the by the lender, right? The lender spread. So let's say that, I mean, the Treasury today is, let's just say, 4.1, and let's say the spread is 1.9%. So that means your all-in rate would be 6%. And that would be your interest rate on your loan. And so if you're looking for positive leverage, which everyone wants then you would look to buy a cap rate that is in excess of 6%. So, so the way to look at this relationship is you can look at the direct positive spread, meaning your cap rate versus your interest rate, which would be positive leverage. Or you could look at the cap rate historically relative to the index rate of the 10-year treasury. I would say it's all about the same. I mean, yes, there's volatility in spreads. Absolutely, right? Spreads get tighter, they get wider. So maybe you want to take into account that spread. But this chart, for example, was just focusing on cap rates versus treasuries. And so 
showed that in 2012, there was a the widest gap there between treasuries and cap rates, and which represents a very attractive time to buy because the wider that gap, the more positive leverage you can lock in. And then when the market got very hot, that gap was very, very tight. And if you look at what we have today, well, let's let's look at, you know, earlier this year, we almost saw a 5% treasury. I mean, the treasuries really ran up and cap rates are now about six. So that's only a 100 basis point spread. That's very tight as compared to the over 400 basis point spread at its widest in 2012. And then the chart also showed roughly a 400 basis point spread at the peak of COVID when there was no transactions getting done and you couldn't find a buyer for anything because people thought the world was ending, right? We actually had a deal for sale at that time, right when the lockdowns broke out and stuff and people weren't getting on planes, right? So nobody would be willing to jump on a plane and go tour our deal. So they're just the sale had to stop, right? Of course, everything eventually got back to normal and people were buying deals, but there was a period of time where that, that spread had to widen. So today we've seen treasuries come down, let's just say, like I said, 4.1% today, roughly. And cap rates, we've seen them widen. So we're seeing 6% plus, even for quality real estate. So that's a good 200 basis point spread. So we're not at 400, right? 400 is the historical high and pretty much your flashing buy signal. If you are looking for a flashing buy signal, that would be the bad signal. That would be like, that would be like the market hitting you over the head and saying, you have to buy. Easier said than done, right? Because that usually is an indication of distress or dislocation or lack of liquidity, right? But the that I thought that was an interesting chart and it's cool to see and, and it's something to be mindful of. And the historical average is around 200 basis points. So right now, where we are today, it's it's like it's a good time to buy, but it's not like flashing lights. Hey, you need to buy right now. So I think in 2024, we'll probably see the 10 tr- year go below four and we'll probably see cap rates push into the mid sixes. And so we'll see, you know, maybe a 300 basis point spread. And I think that's a pretty decent flashing buy sign. So when are you predicting, pull out your crystal ball here, when is Rollnomics going to come into play and we're going to get the 150 this, uh, point spread? <laughs> Roll, Rollnomics, right deals. Jeremy Roll. Yeah, Rollnomics. So, I just all right, yeah, that. Let's, let's break it down. So if Jeremy Roll wants a 150 basis point pot spread on on, on pers- market rate deals, not uh, you know how we can... No, figure I, out ways to preserve, you know, incredible missions to preserve affordability and provide incredible uh, places to live for those who maybe make around sixty percent of the area median income. But outside of that, yeah, correct, correct. So, and also, like we talked about, I think on the last week's show or the week before, we talked about the nuances of positive leverage. Right, mm-hmm. people understand that you can't actually buy a deal at let's say eighty-five percent occupancy and push rents, push occupancy, and stabilize to positive leverage. And so they're they're not. You know, I'm sure Jeremy would consider doing a deal where you're going in at 100 bips of positive leverage, and then through the business plan, you're pushing it to 150 or 175 or something like that, right? You obviously want to get paid for that risk, but let's let's just ignore that for now, and let's just say the bogey is 150 going in. So let's let's look at that. What you would need then is let's just assume a spread of 200, which spreads can definitely be narrower. You can get a spread of 160, 180. Right, but if we're very conservative and we assume a lender spread of 200 and we want 
a 150 basis point spread to the cap, that's that's all very simple math, right? We can just do some addition. So if let's just say, let's be optimistic and say that the 10 year goes down to 3.5%, then we have a 200 basis point lender spread that puts rates at five and a half. So that's your debt interest rate. And then if you want 150 basis point positive spread, that means your cap rate needs to be seven. So sevens, you know, we're not quite there yet for good quality real estate. You'd have to kind of go dumpster diving a little bit, but who knows? Maybe we will see a seven on on decent property with a three with a corresponding three and a half, 10 year. And yeah, that would be that would be Rollonomics approved, and that would be a very, very good deal. I love it. I love it. Another thing that uh, James mentioned on the webinar is he took a field trip to, I believe, Austin. And he's a Texas guy, I believe. He grew up in Houston. I think he went to UT, he said. Uh, but he was in Austin. And what he saw was Class B apartment complexes offering you know, two-month concessions uh, and whatnot for rent renters to move in. So a two-month concession means basically two months uh, of free rent and why folks would rather provide free rent as opposed to a lower price is because obviously on the business plan, it shows a bit worse to have them at a lower price, a tenant at a lower price, as opposed to just giving away um, a month or two to help the individual tenant out. So that's in Austin as we've, I think we spoke about this before on this show, but Austin's going to experience some issues coming up here with a bunch of inventory coming up, but this is not probably just subject to Austin. Uh, and by the way, inventory as in new supply, new units, new properties being built and better options for renters, uh, meaning, you know, those who are, you know, call it 2010 and older are probably going to get knocked down a grade or so. But with that said, you know, giving away uh, a month or two here and there of free rent is what he saw and it was experiencing with, you know, kind of class B assets, which is typically, I would say, you know, 90s and 80s vintage assets. Uh, so, you know, with that said, how do you think concessions is going to play into the market here coming up? And, you know, we've also said how, you know, when options get better, the choice on our end becomes more important because we don't want to probably be buying deals that we have to basically pay people to move into, right? So can we kind of walk through, you know, kind of the concessions conversation and, you know, maybe uh, the importance of buying the better assets now and not being in the junk space? Yeah, I think there's this misconception out there with some investors that believe that even even sophisticated investors often think that workforce housing is insulated to new supply or workforce housing isn't as affected by economic downturns because they think that because the tenants for workforce housing are renters by necessity they have nowhere else to go and therefore their occupancy is not going to go down and revenue is going to stay strong Right. And so these are misconceptions, in my opinion. And well, and let me explain the new supply misconception. People think that if they own a 1980s vintage property that has $1,000 rents, they're not affected by new supply coming into the market with $2,000 rents because they don't compete directly. And while it is true they don't compete directly, at the end of the day, there's a trickle down effect because you're adding housing stock to the environment and that's going to offset the supply and demand balance in the market. So and the way that that actually plays out is you have new product that comes online, that new product directly competes with class A product. So in order to lease up and in order to compete, 
There's likely concessions, maybe even rent decreases in the A space. And then just play out from there. If A property has concessions, somebody living in a class B apartment might go, oh, you know what? I previously couldn't afford to live at that nice A spot, but they're offering two months free and the rent is coming down a little bit as well. I'm going to swing it and I'm going to go move up. Now, of course, that could be counteracted by a recessionary environment where that person has less income stability or growth and doesn't decide to make that move, but it does it does happen. And if, if that person's going up and then class A rent's coming down, it kind of makes the B rent have to come down a bit and then it trickles down to the C as well. So there is an insulating factor by being levels removed from the new supply, but it's not a total insulation. And so James pointed out, to his surprise, actually, which I guess it's fair for him to be surprised because to his surprise, he was seeing class B product with, I think, in, in Austin with like two months free, right? And that yeah. is very, very, very rare for class B product. And that's that's an indicative or a reflection, like you said, of Austin's particular issue because Austin has a ton of supply. And they're going to have to battle it out. And there's going to be a concessions battle. There's going to be just battle for tenants. So occupancy is going to struggle. Um, but, you know, the counter argument that pro-Austin people are going to make is, okay, yeah, we're going to struggle for the next couple of years. But look at the last 10. Look at the last 20. We've gone like this. And so if you like, just like your your Phoenix example, if you smooth it out, average it out over the last 20 years, even with all the rents coming down and concessions in Austin, you look at the the long-term average and it's still super strong, right? There's still a ton of positives about Austin, but it's just always more challenging to chase growth, especially in the short term, because you might be right now experiencing a, the painful moment in time in Austin as fundamentals are deteriorating. And if you only bought in the last few years, all you're experiencing is down. But if you owned in Austin for the last 20, the same property, you might have seen some ups and downs, but mostly up, right? And so you're totally fine seeing rents come down a bit by 10%, let's say, because you're, you've are you done so well. Right, right. Interesting thoughts. Any other kind of items on James's webinar that you want to dive into or that you thought uh, particularly kind of cemented some thoughts in your, in your brain that maybe sparks some interest or anything like that? No, no, we'll see what he has to, to say next time. Cool. And you know what? That actually would be someone I would love to have on this show. So if anyone knows him, uh, put us in touch. We'd love it. Maybe I'll have to send him an email and yeah, give we, him a we met him in, we met him in Dallas a year ago, actually. Okay. Or or we bumped into him last time. We could we could uh we could definitely make it happen. Yeah, we'd love that. Here's something I think is a little bit interesting that we haven't spoke on uh on this show, I don't believe, but how does someone get into syndication? So from buying a deal requirements. You can't just buy and take down, you know, a thirty million dollar deal, um, you know, willy nilly. There's a lot to go on to it. So maybe can you explain how you learned about the process of how you get into syndication and kind of what's required to get it going? Maybe from a financial perspective, um, backgrounds to get lending, so on and so forth. Totally switching gears here, by the way, um, but would love to kind of have that broken out for anyone who is an aspiring syndicator or someone just wants to know the engineering of the business. Sure. Yeah. So a lot of people think about real estate and it's funny because we all live in real estate and interact with real estate every day, right? We're working in an office. We live in an apartment. 
And so we experience real estate all the time. And so I think people have an oversimplified understanding of what it means to own real estate or be a real estate investor, which is, you know, has its pros and cons. It attracts a lot of people to the industry and there's lower barriers to entry. And it is frankly a simpler business, right? Multifamily is not complex. But with that being said, even though it isn't complex, people do underestimate its complexity. Uh, it's, because, it can't be complex at all. That's why you wrote two books on it. Yeah. So, I mean, it is a little bit more complex than people think because they think, oh, well, I'll just buy an apartment. I manage it. I collect the rents. I pay the expenses. It's super simple, right? But when I'll you, paint the exterior white, I'll put black trim on it and I'll sell it. Nobody's going to get that joke. <laughs> but anyway, um, some, some, someone might. Someone, someone might. Someone might. So hopefully they appreciate it. So yeah, yeah that, that was not in my book. Yeah. <laughs> so with, with, with the reality being much more complicated because there's a lot of legal things that go into buying property, a lot of qualifications like you alluded to as far as financial wherewithal, which, which is in, associated with qualifying for the loan and being actually uh, credit worthy and, and having the ability to guarantee the loan and things like that. So yeah, there's a lot that goes into it. So so let's break down the components. So, you know, firstly, the way that I like to start is talking about a strategy and then a market. So I think it's very wise for someone who's looking to get started with a real estate investing business. I think it's very wise for them to pick a strategy and to pick a market. Because if you try to have a broad angle to your business, it's very, very challenging to succeed because you're not going to stand out in any way because you're not niching down and it's going to be very difficult for you to develop the expertise requisite to be successful if you're trying to be uh, a master in many things. So I recommend picking a certain asset class, picking a certain geography and sticking to that only to start, right? Once you master it and scale, then you can become a, a regional owner operator. You can scale or incorporate other asset classes. But you know, to start day one and say, oh, yeah, well, we buy office, retail, hospitality, multifamily, nationwide. It's like, all right, that's really, really tough. There is a way to do that. And we can maybe talk about that. But I think that's a totally different business model than going, all right, we're going to do Houston, class B and C multifamily. That's not unique. There's a lot of people doing that. But there's far, few pe far fewer people that are only doing that, right? So if you do something specific like that and niche down, it's going to make your life a lot easier. Even though it seems paradoxical because in your mind you're thinking, oh, well, I'm limiting myself to just that. So my options to succeed are lower, but it's actually not true because you're limiting yourself. It's actually giving you a leg up. So that's number one. Number two, and, and that precipitates deal flow because if you are in the market, especially if you're local, putting in the hours, putting in the effort, driving the area, getting to know the people in the area, getting to know the brokers, you're going to get deal flow and you're going to be able to develop the expertise to analyze that deal flow. Because like I said, if you are sourcing an office deal in Milwaukee and looking at a hospitality deal in Miami and underwriting a multifamily deal in Austin, how, how do you know anything about these deals and how can you compare and say, oh, well, this deal is better than that deal or 
this is the one that we should do, right? It makes no sense. But if you're looking at 100 Houston multifamily deals that are all built in the 1980s, you're going to start to develop some insight and go, oh, okay, I'm starting to understand that this deal looks good. This deal's no good. This deal has some interesting opportunity to it. And any deal can be good, by the way, based upon the numbers and your purchase, right? So that's the one thing to make clear is that your basis is always the the trump card, right? Yes, 100%. I mean, yeah, pretty much anything can be a good deal at the right price. It's just then a question of, are you equipped to take advantage of it? Because going back to the oil and gas example, if someone came to you and I and said, oh, well, I have a sweet upstream oil opportunity in Midland, and they're willing to give it to us at a great basis, whatever that means. Like you and I aren't equipped to take advantage yeah. and actually ba- based upon what? Yeah, we have no reference point. We have no ab- ability to analyze it, right? Right. So you need the three things, which actually I open one of the books that you just pulled up, structuring and raising debt and equity for real estate. I open the book with saying that a good deal is three things: the right price, the right structure, and the right management. Right. So you need those three pillars to make a successful deal. So basis obviously is everything and then structuring the debt and the equity to match the business plan and and the goals and the object the objectives of the investors and then of course the management to carry out and have to build the skills and expertise and so i would say that we can kind of use those pillars as a way to walk through all the steps so right now we talked about setting the strategy setting the intention building the expertise that's going to help you buy deals at a good basis which is pillar number 1 right? Because if you're becoming an expert in the market, looking at a lot of deals, you're more likely to buy a, a good deal from a basis perspective uh, than other than if you were to otherwise be looking everywhere, right? So that's kind of step number one. Now, number two, we get to structuring. And structuring and raising, like you said, I wrote a whole book about it. This is, in my opinion, the hardest part. And so you you have to get this right. This is super important. So let's talk about the debt side first because it, in my mind, it comes first and it's easier. So I don't want to repeat everything I, I say in the book, but on the debt side, you want to make sure that you're using appropriate debt products that match the intention and the business plan and the objectives of your investors. That's not that difficult to do. You just basically need to understand what your options are I would even recommend working with a quality debt broker that you trust and and enjoy working with. Shout out to Nate Lowy. We should definitely have him on the show. He is our trusted debt broker. So that's a good shout out. He was also the platinum sponsor of our recent uh, summit. So that was great. Who is he with now? Well, it's his firm, Juniper Capital Group. Very good. Yep. So... One thing that is trickier on the debt side is the need for a loan guarantor. Because when you're starting out, unless you're rich already, it's very unlikely that you're going to yourself qualify for the loan covenants, uh, for the warm body guarantor covenants, which are usually you have to have a net worth equal or greater to the loan amount, liquidity equal or greater to 10% of the loan amount, and then there's an experience component, which they want to know that you actually have experience owning and managing property of this type. The experience one is obviously the least, maybe not obvious, but it is the least important part. Uh, but the net worth and liquidity requirements are tough to get around. So like I said, unless you're doing your first deal and you're already rich, 
that can be tough. What and then what that causes you to do is the is you need to go out and find a loan guarantor, which is someone that you can partner with, and they're willing to sign the loan with you. So you and the, your loan guarantor will co-sign the loan and both guarantee the loan, and they'll provide their balance sheet as a way to satisfy those loan requirements. So building relationships in the space, establishing credibility, building trust, because if someone's going to sign a loan, sign on a loan with you, they're putting a lot of trust in you that you're not going to screw it up because they're putting their balance sheet on the line. They're putting their credit worthiness on the line because if you mess up and the deal gets foreclosed on, well, your loan guarantor technically got foreclosed on as well because they signed that loan as well. And now they have a foreclosure on their track record and that's no fun for anyone. So that is something really important to cultivate that loan guarantor relationship. And then ideally you get a couple deals under your belt, you grow, and then you build the net worth, liquidity, and expertise to no longer need your loan guarantor partner and you can do it yourself. So there is light at the end of the tunnel. So that's the very debt cool. side. The equity side, as you and I know very well, is uh, we'll lovingly say it's the hardest part of the business because if it's hard to convince an investor, I'm sorry, a loan guarantor and a lender to work with you, investors, it's much, much harder. There's a lot of trust that needs to be built and you really have to prove to your investors why they should invest with you over the hundreds of other options that they have. So we work really hard every single day to prove to our investors why we are the best option for them. I mean, I do have... We we literally eat, breathe, and sleep and wake up thinking about how the heck are we going to find new JV partnerships, that's joint venture partnerships with groups that can bring us anywhere between 5 to $20 million on an individual deal and how we can figure out and attract and you know cultivate uh, more limited partner LP investors who can cut 100 to 500K checks um, at will whenever we have an opportunity that we think is you know valid enough to send out to everyone. That's legitimately all I think about these days is that from a work perspective. Obviously, I have to think about fun ways to entertain the crowds and do the audience and have podcasts to hopefully attract you. So that's how much it all comes comes back full circle just for that one singular and focus and goal is to do that. So, you know, it's really kind of the straw that serves the drink is the equity side. Um, and funny enough, you could have just eh, business plans and, you know, it's just an eh strategy, maybe get slightly above market beta or market beta as we broke out before. But if you can raise money, you're going to be very, very wealthy. Yes, 100%. So it is the most important part. It is also the hardest part. And also beyond just like you talked about, we think about every day how we can attract more investors and raise money for our deals. But it also the work is not done. And, and you know this very well. The work is not done once you raise the money, right? In many ways, that's when the work only starts. Certainly, that's <laughs> when the work starts for the asset management team, the property management team, construction management, reporting, communications, investor relations, all that stuff. So that's when the work really starts because if you're scrambling to find new investors for all your deals and you're not retaining investors, that's no good. That's not a good business, right? We want to make our lives... E you and I know that what we're working on is everything we do today makes our lives easier tomorrow because we're actually building a business that compounds and that we know that in 10 years from now, 
we're going to have investors that have invested with us over and over again, have had a good experience, and that just the money comes back to us tenfold. Yeah. And, and moreover, it's like, oh, well, if we don't necessarily win person A, but person B is invested with us. Well, if we've got all these people that have worked with us, then getting the, the yes from the person who hadn't given it to us yet only becomes easier. And we actually had a conversation about this this morning. And that was in regards to, okay, well, we have all these people that we're meeting. We have all these you know, bigger check writers that we're trying to seek and connect with. But we're a little bit wide right now. And kind of my goal in the new year is to get more narrow with maybe just five to 10 of them. You know, obviously we want to get money from everyone, but that's not really realistic. There's only so much bandwidth we all have. But if we can kind of get, you know, a couple of programmatic groups to say yes to us uh, recurring, that would only make our life easier. And that's from a, a bigger check perspective. We've got really awesome partners that we absolutely love and are so appreciative that are kind of in that sub $5 million range. But once we can kind of solve for that five and above range is when, you know, things look really great for us. Yep. So that's that's the equity picture. And I tell people, when Kent and I started Lone Star, we didn't think about any of this. And we we had no plan, no structure to actually raise equity and build investor relationships. Neither of us wanted to do it. Neither of us thought it was important. We It was a complete oversight. We were both just more passionate about the actual real estate side of things. And I thought, oh, why do I want to do marketing? I don't want to do marketing. You know, I don't want to have to be a salesman, right? And so, and nor did Ken. Uh, but we quickly learned that that is a 100%, not just requirement, but it's the most important part of the business. So what I, the advice I give people is you need to have someone on your team full-time thinking, living and breathing this, 100%. They need to be thinking about how we can optimize attracting investors and maximizing investor relations. And that's, uh, yeah, so that's that's the next piece of the puzzle, right? We got the debt, loan guarantor, we got the equity. And, you know, there's been many books and a lot of resources out there talking about how to build relationships with investors, how to raise equity. Shout out to Hunter Thompson and Raise Masters. You know, Hunter wrote a great book about cultivating relationships and, and raising capital in a thoughtful, systematic way and not just, you know, taking someone, taking some rich uncle, you know, to lunch or something like that, right? So there is a formula. It is not an overnight thing, right? This is a long sales cycle. You're talking about, you're not just meeting someone, pitching them a deal and all of a sudden you've got millions in the bank, right? You're talking about building a relationship, sharing your story, your experience, your credibility, proving your credibility and your track record over many years to then finally uh, build up the trust to to earn an investment. Yeah, that's one thing about you know finding an opportunity and then you find these people and then staying in business and then following up with them and having good filing and having the ability to have a, a strong enough CRM that you can navigate to make sure you stay in front of these people and then keeping them engaged is exciting. It's, it's Aaron excited. This is not an easy business or job. And that's the one thing, as I mentioned, is it's so easy to get really wide with people, but you want to get narrow with some groups who, you know, can say yes to you quickly just because they know, like, and trust you. So uh, that's really important. And hopefully everyone listening to this found that informative. 
Um, moving on to the next topic, let's go into going live with the deal and what that timetable looks like, right? So, hey, you know, we're close to getting a deal done. We're looking at opportunities. We underwrote it. Maybe speak about it from when a broker calls Brad to when we go live to maybe the whole cycle and, and process there uh, and break that out. Because I think that pairs really, really nicely with um, the past discussion we just had. Yeah. So when we finally get that phone call, we're back and forth negotiating a letter of intent or LOI. When we finally get that signed and we have an agreement on a deal, right? The contract isn't signed yet. We haven't gotten a contract yet, but the initial letter of intent is now agreed upon. So we've got price and rough terms agreed upon. And now it's up to the attorneys to draft a contract and then go back and forth and negotiate the contract. And so right when we get that accepted LOI, is when we start going to work and we start putting together a preliminary package to share with our potential investors. And by the way, if you want to see an example of a very detailed and thorough data room, and if you want to raise money and an opportunity, please email me at craig uh, Yeah, 100%. We do have very organized, uh, robust data rooms. So that's what we put together. We put together the preliminary data room because, you know, of course, right when the signed LOI occurs, we don't have all the due diligence done or anything, right? We don't even have a signed contract. So it's a prelim data room, but it's enough information to send to an investor uh, to put them in a position to actually make a decision of whether they want to invest or not, subject to further due diligence if they need it. But that's our process. And so typically, it takes at least a week more likely two weeks to actually go from signed LOI to signed PSA, purchase and sale agreement. And then from there, we're on the clock officially. The contract is signed, and now we're in the due diligence period. And so due diligence period is usually 30 days, and that's when we schedule our teams to get on site and do full due diligence at the property. At the same time as that's occurring, we're now taking our preliminary data room and we're beefing it up and getting it ready for the formal uh, launch of the deal. And so what we're doing is we are downloading the results of our due diligence, which means digesting our findings, updating budgets, and really finalizing the numbers. And those finalized numbers flow through to our underwriting model, which then projects out our projected returns. And the projected returns and sensitivity analyses and everything like that gets put into our pitch deck. And that is what is presented to investors for them to review the deal. So we have that full pitch deck and that usually will go live, you know, roughly around midway through or towards the end of the due diligence period. Because what we try to knock out, we try to knock out the actual physical due diligence within the first two weeks of DD. So we want to get out and go live as quickly as possible to give us as much time as possible to raise the equity uh, because we like to give our investors about a month. I mean, we'd like to shorten the timeline as well. And this is some project that we're working on because the faster we can actually put a deal together, launch it, raise it, close down the fundraising, and then close the deal, the faster we can do all that, the faster we can close deals, the faster we can close deals, the more deals we can do, the more deals we do, the, the more volume we're able to do per year, right? So as, as we're ambitious uh, company and ambitious guys, we're always looking to grow and so the goal for 2024 is to acquire 300 million for the year. And if it takes you six months to close a deal, 
right? And you're just working on deals sequentially, you'll never get to that number, right? So we need to work on not just the number of deals we do, but to close them faster. Speed is a critical element to this to this process. Yeah, and our end, you know, we need to do a good job to make sure that we send it out some groups, figure out, hey, who might be a big check writer, who might take a big chunk of the deal? Um, how do we kind of mix new partners, old partners, um, and people that you know we want to prioritize in the opportunity? You know, that's something that we're kind of struggling with potentially. We may or may not have a new deal right now that we're working through where we are struggling to figure out the direction we want to go in. And I think it's solidified here now. But it's it's tough because we don't want to offend anyone saying no, we don't have any room, and then we don't want to say yes someone to someone similarly that falls really short on the raise, and then you know basically not allow someone who we know can hit it hit it. So who you say yes to is really important, and who you say no to is actually even more important. So uh, there's more to go on to the deal uh, and kind of some behind the scenes action associated with the opportunity than I think would meet the eye or would, you know, have people, you know, I, I, I think there'd be a lot more moving parts to to that equation than, than one would think. And it's a great situation to be in saying, oh, well, who do we want to raise from? Who Whose money do we want to have that have kind of come into the deal? It's taken all of six years, basically, as a firm to get to that point right now. And we hope to continue that where we can kind of isolate and get people to say yes to us quicker, where we send out a deal. There's more urgency attached to the opportunity because people know that our deals oversubscribe. So, you know, we're all kind of working towards that. But, you know, at that, with that said, you know, these groups who are maybe giving you $10 million, they probably want to take, you know, maybe a couple of weeks to get comfortable with the opportunity before, you know, cutting that check. So, you know, everyone has their kind of sides to it. We want to make sure that if you're a fund manager working with us, and if you are looking to work with us, you know, my email. Uh, but if you are, we want to try to give you 30 to 45 days to raise the deal to make, um, you know, you look good to make sure that you can hit your goal. Um, and, and, you know, have our LPs feel comfortable and have and make sure that the, all of their questions have been answered. So a lot of moving parts, you know, with regards to the syndication process as Rob just broke out. And obviously a lot of moving parts and, you know, strategy and thoughtfulness associated with, you know, the, the launching and going live with the deal and what that looks like, because we're, you know, on our end wanting to always kind of perfect our craft and to always implement best strategy. And it's, it's a moving goalpost and it's a, it's a changing uh, endeavor and every deal has a different situation. You know, that we could be doing a market rate deal that is a lot more normal down the fairway with really no complexity or nuance to it. Uh, and then there could be the other end of the spectrum, which is an affordable strategy that maybe gets delayed or has an extra 30 to 60 days on the escrow process due to whatever it may be. So um, it's not a one size fit all kind of launch process uh, on our end. So Something you, to think about. The the very important concept that you mentioned there is oversubscribed. Getting to oversubscribed is such a valuable thing because people talk about, oh, what's your best strategy for raising money and this kind of stuff? And I'm not trying to say that I'm taking credit for this or pioneered this at all because we do not do a good job of this. And I'll explain why in a second. But the best way to raise money is to turn it away. Right. That's the same concept as anything. Right. Uh, people love demand. You know, it's actually funny. I was hanging out after a lovely evening of pickleball with my friend Dean. We were talking about the concept of restaurants not taking reservations and being walk in only. Right. And it's such an annoying concept. Like I do not want to go to a res restaurant without a reservation. Right. Yeah. Because you want certainty. I want certainty. Exactly. 
but Dean and I were having a conversation about this and we were talking about how if a restaurant doesn't have reservations, then you don't know if there's going to be a line, if there's going to, if it's going to be empty. So you're just going to go and you're just going to go and see what's up and you're going to figure it out. Right. And it's somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy of demand. And this, the opposite end of the spectrum is if a restaurant does accept reservations and you go on resi to book a reservation and you look at the days and the times and you go, Oh wait, every day and time is available. This must not be a good restaurant because it's always available. People don't want to go here. I'm not going to go here. You you want the you want the reservation to be like a four Charles or a Carbone or Fort Knox where they have it on Resi, but you really can't even get a reservation. It's more just to let you know that it's there so you can't get it. It's kind of like the same premise of if one were to acquire a Rolex or a Patek Philippe or an Audemars Piguet, something that has slightly uh, limited inventory on it. It's very frustrating to go to the Rolex store to see Expedition only, to see the exact make and model that you want, of which the authorized dealers don't have it. And you can put your name on the list to never get called and to get ghosted like uh, a girl out of your league to you know a normal person, right? That's what it feels like. So it's kind of cool um, if we could kind of have that, but have some certainty or have some urgency associated with our opportunities where it's like saying, hey, our deals fill up. And, you know, we need you to get back to us and to communicate with us if you want to deploy your equity into our opportunities. So we're all trying to level up here and get better. And that's something that I hope to experience. Uh, I hope that's something that Lone Star here, uh, we we can get to the point where we have our people we want to work with and we can even just privately market our deals and shoot for a lower IRR uh, to, you know, achieve great returns and to sleep well at night and to hit our singles and doubles with every investment. Yeah, so here's here's the tough thing about being oversubscribed. So if we, let's say we only did one deal in a whole year and it was a $10 million equity raise, we would be oversubscribed very quickly, just like we are now, right? We're, we're oversubscribed really fast because we're, we're doing a great deal and it's only a $10 million equity check, so there's not much room. So it got oversubscribed very quickly right? So being oversubscribed is easier if you do fewer deals and smaller deals, right? Now, conversely, if we're being ambitious, which we are, and we're trying to do and stretch ourselves, right? And and push ourselves. What does that mean? That means we're putting more deals under contract. That means we're pushing to pursue larger deals than we have experience with or larger deals than we somewhat feel comfortable with. That's a great thing, right? We all know that stretching ourselves and working hard and pushing our comfort zone is always a fantastic thing. But guess what? That's going to make it way, way harder to oversubscribe. Because if you've never done a $40 million equity raise before, are you going to oversubscribe it? Probably not, right? Unless you're really impressive. Yeah, I mean, unless you've done it before, right? And so there will come a time where we will be able to oversubscribe a $40 million equity raise very fast. That will come. That day will come. It's just not today. And so, but guess what? When we're at that level, we're going to be ambitious guys and we're not going to be satisfied with raising $40 million and being oversubscribed in a week, right? We're going to say, no, no, we don't want to do a $80 million deal. We want to buy the $300 million million portfolio, right? We want to do a billion dollar deal and have to go out and slug it out and raise $300 million, right? So the way I look at being oversubscribed is yes, it is the most powerful tool for raising equity. 
because there's nothing better than telling someone, "Hey, sorry, your money's no good here. We we're already filled up." You know, uh, if you if you if you act faster, we'll be able to you know work with you next time, right? Come that's, on, yeah. That's the most powerful thing you can do. But it would be nice if people want to wine and dine us and take me to the nice dinners and fly out to me to see me. So hopefully I would give them the first call, you know, like you're selling a Panda, uh, you know, a Rolex Daytona Panda where, you know, people would really do anything and pay, you know, premiums for, for that. Right. Yep. But for now, us taking our investors out to nice dinners on the company dime is, uh, is it'll, it'll, it'll be okay for now. Listen, the Lone Star card works every single time I swipe it. So maybe I should start, you know, using it for some of my personal expenses while I'm at it. Yes, yeah, see how that goes for you. <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, with that said, this concludes an incredible episode, episode, episode 25 at the Capital Spotlight Show. Rob, thank you so much as always for your insights, your knowledge uh, and expertise in the field. If you are looking to see more of Rob's information, content, whatever it may be, please add him on LinkedIn. It's Rob Beardsley. You know the drill. If you're looking to buy an incredible book for a family member during this holiday season, I got two really good options right here. Give the gift of knowledge. Buy these two books. They've been sold over how many copies? Uh, we've sold over 20,000 copies. Over 20,000 copies. There you have it. And if you're looking to 1031 exchange an opportunity, you know my email. But once again, it's Craig at LSCRE.com. If you're a fund manager looking to partner with a group for the first time, you know my email, but I'll give it to you again. It's Craig at LSCRE.com. I would Thank also so say much, that everyone. even a better gift than my books would be a watch. So mm. we haven't shouted out watches, but if you are a friend of ours, if you're a friend of the show or a potential investor or existing investor, and you do want to buy... Uh, you know, a nice, a nice watch. Uh, we would love to help work with you on that. You know, as we've mentioned before, uh, my uncle is 40 years experience in the watch business. So I've partnered with him to be able to source watches in the gray market and we won't charge any dealer premium or anything. We'll get it to you at our cost, which will be the best deal you can find in the market. So we do this just for fun, just because we love watches and we love to see our friends uh, smile from having an amazing uh, piece on their wrist. And with that said, if maybe you want to give us, and if you're an investor and you, you know, potentially invest with us around $10 million, maybe we'll just buy you a watch and throw it in as a little uh, gift and a token of our appreciation. I think that could be arranged. Coming out of Rob's pocket, of course. With that, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next episode.